Good evening. This evening's reading is taken from Daniel chapter 4, which can be found on page 888 in your church Bibles. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters and astrologers and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches, from every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers the holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. 
your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends the distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, let him live with the wild animals, until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord the king. You will be driven away from the people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then you prosper, your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from his people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the power of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honour and splendour were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt the glory of the King of Heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is unable to humble. As we come to this passage of scripture, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you speak, that you speak to both great and to small, that your word is relevant to the highest kings and to the lowest of us. And we pray that you'll speak to us together tonight as we read your word and as we reflect on what you have to say through it. Please speak to our hearts and transform us, that we might be the people you have made us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, it's um, a happy coincidence that uh, this is the day on which our intrepid KO uh, uh, travellers are giving their testimonies, speaking of what God has done in their lives uh, in uh, the language of the people that they've gone to, uh, because uh, this chapter of, of Daniel is essentially that, a testimony in, in a language easily understood uh, by the people of the surrounding nations. And the book of Daniel is a strange book. If you haven't realized that yet, uh, by the time we get to the end of it, you really will. Um, because we're going all the way. <laughs> we're not stopping at chapter 7, as uh, sometimes people do. Um, but it's a strange book in a whole range of ways. It, it, it deals with strange imagery and, uh, and, and unusual pictures, uh, such as that that we see today, and certainly the prophecies that come later in the book. Uh, but it's also strange in that it's actually written in two different languages. I don't know if you realize that, but if you turn back to chapter 2 and verse 4, um, it says this, Then the astrologers answered the king, uh, and in the text it says, In Aramaic, May the king live forever. May you tell your servants the dream. And you've probably got a little footnote at the bottom of the page saying, at this point, the Hebrew text has in Aramaic, indicating that the text from here through to the end of chapter 7 is in Aramaic. Now, Aramaic was the kind of great trade language of the ancient Near East. It was the language that everyone could understand. Whatever their native language was, if you wanted to do business, if you wanted to travel and sort of do deals around the uh, known world, uh, then you would speak in Aramaic because everyone understood it. During the Roman Empire, that language that was used in that sort of way was Greek, uh, which is no doubt the reason that the New Testament is written in Greek rather than in Latin or, or, or any other language, or Hebrew or Aramaic even. Um, and today, I suppose that language worldwide is, is, at least for the moment, English. But Daniel chapter 2 through to chapter 7 is one section within the book uh, that is written in an international language, in a language that could be understood not only like the rest of the book, which is in Hebrew, which could be understood by the Hebrew peoples, the people of Israel. The re- the, these chapters, these six chapters, are in Aramaic, which everyone could understand. Uh, and together they form a, a sort of message to the whole world, not just to Israel. And when you take chapters 2 to 7 together, what you see is that they pair up, that there's a, there's a very clear structure to it. So in chapter 2, you have a vision of four kingdoms uh, in a dream by King Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 7, you have a vision of four kingdoms, uh, but given to Daniel, the prophet. In chapter 3, uh, you have people uh, who refuse to go against uh, God's command to worship only him. They refuse to bow down to the, to the, uh, to the statue. Uh, and uh, we heard about that last week. Uh, in um, chapter 6, we have Daniel refusing uh, to stop praying to God. Uh, and he is then put in danger uh, of his life and is thrown into the lion's den. Uh, and in chapters 3 and 6... Uh, where there's that great peril for choosing to, to, to go God's way, uh, there is um, a, a, an interesting little uh, thing to note, uh, and that is that two completely different forms of government come into conflict with obedience to God. So in chapter 3, it is uh, 
tyranny, you might say, absolute one-person leadership, the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar. He makes a decree, uh, you must worship this statue, you must fall down and, uh, and worship it, uh, and it's sort of satirized in the way that it's described in, in Daniel. Uh, but uh, the, the three boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, will not bow down to the statue. Uh, and so uh, they face the wrath of uh, the, the absolute monarch, the tyrant, uh, who tries to throw them into uh, a fiery furnace. Uh, well, and they are thrown into the fiery furnace, but without much success. They come out not even smelling of smoke. And in chapter 6, it's not absolute rule by an all-powerful individual, but it's the absolute rule of law to which even the emperor, the great king Cyrus, or Darius, uh, has to uh, himself be submitted, the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be altered. Uh, and he's tricked into passing a law that Daniel won't keep because people are envious of Daniel uh, and of his position. So they say no one may pray, but Daniel keeps on praying. Now, I think that's quite significant in terms of uh, the book of Daniel as a whole because it deals with kind of supranational concerns. It deals with questions of government. It deals with questions of empire and to whom empires are actually answerable. It's not in the end the ultimate monarch. It's not in the end uh, simply the rule of law, but that there is a God who is over all, to whom all empires, uh, all powers must be submitted. He is in charge uh, and he shows that by protecting his, uh, his people in those moments to demonstrate his great power over supreme human power, however it may be structured, however it may be couched, the power of empire. Uh, and then right here then in the middle of that section, so you've got these two dreams of four kingdoms, you've got um, conflict between uh, all-powerful kingdoms and the kingdom of God. Uh, and then here in chapter 4 and then in chapter 5, uh, you have encounters between the great powerful leaders and God himself. In, in chapter 4, it's an encounter of mercy for Nebuchadnezzar, where he is humbled under God's mighty hand and becomes even greater. Uh, and then uh, in chapter 5, um, that story famous for the writing that appears on the wall. Whenever you hear that phrase, the writing on the wall, it comes from here, Daniel chapter 5, where uh, Belshazzar sets himself up against God. He, he throws a party, uh, drinking from uh, the vessels taken from the, the temple in Jerusalem that we heard about a, a few weeks ago in chapter 1, uh, and uh, he loses everything. The whole kingdom is, is taken away. Uh, Babylon falls the great Babylon, the unconquerable kingdom, the city that is unbesiegeable is besieged. And that very night, Belshazzar dies. So God is showing the nations of the world that their power, great though it may be, is limited, is subordinate to his power. He is the great king. Uh, and that's very much the theme, isn't it, here in, in chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. 
He had a dream in chapter, uh, in chapter two, uh, this dream of the, of the statue uh, with the, the four metals, these four different kingdoms of which his was the greatest, uh, but which would one day be destroyed. All these kingdoms would one day be destroyed by a rock cut out not by human hands that would grow and fill the whole world. This unworldly kingdom, the kingdom of God, it, it struck as, uh, Dan, as Nebuchadnezzar saw uh, in that fourth kingdom, which I think is rightly interpreted as uh, the Roman Empire, which indeed was uh, unimaginably great in that moment when Jesus came into the world, when the beginnings of, of the kingdom of God came in with Jesus, and yet which itself was eventually conquered by the gospel despite all its efforts to destroy the nascent church, the early church, the beginnings of of that kingdom, Rome, in in the end, was itself overthrown by the kingdom of God. And here, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. Uh, And just like that first dream in chapter 2, it terrifies him. He cannot sleep. He is terrified and calls, you see that, as I was lying in my bed, verse 5. The images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So on the one hand, he sees it as a dream, and on the other hand, he sees it almost as a prophetic vision. He knows that it's supernatural. He knows that it comes from heaven. And so just as in chapter 2, he summons to him all those whose job it is to interpret the dreams, but none of them can. Unlike in chapter 2, he tells them the dream. He is so overwhelmed, so terrified that he's not playing games uh, this time. And he calls Belteshazzar, who is Daniel, uh, and says, I know that you have the spirits of the holy gods in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you, so you explain this vision. And the vision is basically very simple. There is this enormous tree, and an angel from heaven comes down and says, cut down the tree. And in one sense, that's it. Bind up its uh, stump with iron, uh, and then in due course, uh, let him be uh, restored. I want you to notice something, though, about that vision. As he, as he looks and as he sees this vision of a tree, which Daniel will tell him is a vision of his own self, uh, listen to how it's described. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. Now, it's tempting for us when we, when we sort of confront great empires in scripture or in history to, to want to paint them as either good or bad, to put them either in a white hat or a black hat, either the goodies or the baddies. But actually, this vision is much more nuanced than that, isn't it? Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is good in all kinds of ways. It is beautiful. It provides protection. It provides provision. There is a way in which, through this kingdom, there is great blessing on the earth, great safety for many, great protection and provision. It's not as simple as this is the evil empire that must be overthrown. This empire brings with it great benefits, as indeed did the Roman Empire. And we still live with some of the benefits of it. And yet at its heart, at the heart of the king, there is a serious problem. 
the problem of pride. Uh, And that is what becomes uh, very clear uh, as uh, Daniel explains the dream to Belshazzar. Notice the shift. Uh, it's, it's, it's all kind of um, uh, sort of in the first person up to verse 18. This is what happened to me. Uh, and then in verse 19, it shifts into a sort of third person narrator, uh, sort of describing the events from something of a distance. Then Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed. Uh, and um, what he says to uh, the king is this. This is the interpretation, your majesty. This is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord, the king. Uh, And the response, he he says, to to this vision, verse 27, therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. So there's this great kingdom that has all kinds of good things about it, and yet somewhere at its root there is oppression, uh, there is a a degree of wickedness, there are things that are not right. Uh, And uh, in what happens next, we see the root of all of that oppression and wickedness. As the king is walking on the roof of his royal palace, he said, verse 30, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Nebuchadnezzar has set himself up in the place of God. He says, is this not the great Babylon that I have built? Well, of course he hadn't. It was an ancient city by the time he came to power. He had done great things within it, but it had been given to him. It is not by his mighty power and for the glory of his majesty that he's been given a kingdom but for the sake of the people that he serves. And what Nebuchadnezzar has to come to realize, we see in verse 34, as we go back into the first person, as we go back into Nebuchadnezzar speaking of his own experience, he says, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, I honored and glorified him who lives forever. And so he then closes off, verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The bitter root at the heart of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, the source of the oppression and the wickedness, the problem with his kingdom is the problem of his pride. He has set himself up above the king of heaven. He sees himself as the ultimate majesty, the ultimate glory figure. And his conclusion at the end is this. God is good, God is God. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. That's how he signs off his letter. This is the story of the profound humbling of a proud man. Because it is the story of the profound humbling of a proud 
kingdom. Now, I think there are two basic ways that we need to look at this passage, two things that God is teaching us through this whole section of Daniel uh, and through this whole book of Daniel. Uh, And the first is about the whole idea of power, the whole idea of kingdoms, and what kind of kingdom God himself is building in the world. Babylon at its heart, is a kingdom of pride. A kingdom of self-exaltation, of putting human achievement, human power, above worship. Nebuchadnezzar begins this story worshipping himself and ends it worshipping God. He begins worshipping power and ends recognizing that power is a gift from God and that in the end, all the peoples, this is verse 35, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. God does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? As the church grew in the Roman Empire, the empire began to crumble. And um, uh, towards the end of the uh, fourth century, um, successful raids uh, began to occur on the city of Rome itself. Uh, And um, Roman people began to start saying, the problem is that we've abandoned the old gods who kept the city safe who gave Rome its power and its glory. We've turned to, to, to worship this Jesus, and look what it's got us. The empire is crumbling. Our power is gone. Our safety is taken from us. The glory of Rome is fading because we have adopted this foreign god, because we've not worshipped the Roman gods. Uh, and uh, the great Augustine, uh, confronted by this, uh, Augustine was um, Bishop of Hippo. He spent uh, Hippo's in, in sort of Carthage, North Africa, Tunisia today. Uh, and um, he sat down uh, to write a reply to that accusation that the church had undermined the good of the Roman Empire. Uh, and um, at very great length, he, he writes a history of the human race and of human empires and of power. Uh, And he says, look, there are two cities, basically. There are two empires. The empire of God and empires built on human pride. Uh, and, And Rome is built on human pride, but doesn't recognize it. The city of God is 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 shaped by humility, by love of God and love of others. But the city of man, as as Augustine describes it, human power is based on the desire to dominate, is based on power. Uh, And uh, this is what Augustine writes right at the very beginning. For I am aware what ability is requisite to persuade the proud how great is the virtue of humility. 
which raises us not by a quite human arrogance, but by a divine grace above all earthly dignities that totter on this shifting scene. For the king and founder of this city of which we speak has in scripture uttered to his people a dictum of the divine law in these words. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But this which is God's prerogative, the inflated ambition of a proud spirit also affects and dearly loves. That this be numbered among its attributes to show pity to the humbled soul and crush the sons of pride. He's quoting there from the Aeneid. Uh, This is the idea that right at the heart of Rome's idea of itself is that it was indeed a, a society that showed pity to the humbled and crushed the proud. So Augustine says, therefore, as the plan of this work we've undertaken requires, and as occasion offers, we must speak also of the earthly city, which though it be mistress of the nations, is itself ruled by its lust of rule. Human cultures, human empires, human power systems can say that they value humility, says Augustine, but at their heart, in the end, is pride and the desire to dominate. Human societies are always, he says, because of who we are, are always based on power. But, says Augustine, the kingdom of God is completely different. It is a totally different kind of way of being in the world. Both in this world and the next, it is ruled by humility and love. And one of the things that Daniel is pointing us forward to is the great king who is coming. This is what Augustine's getting at. The great king who is coming, his kingdom overturns all our ideas of power and authority. They overturn everything we think about what nationhood is, what community is, what human life and society are about. We constantly think in terms of power, in terms of who's oppressed and who's oppressing. But there is a king coming that Daniel points forward to who rules in a totally different way. Listen to these words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How is God's kingdom established? How is God's king set above all rule and authority? How does he receive glory and bring glory to his Father? By humbling himself. By giving himself up. By dying in the place of others. By being scorned and ridiculed and shamed. The kingdom of God is not like any other kingdom. It is based on self-giving, 
other person-centered love. It has humility at its heart. And the kingdom of God is a kingdom shaped by that value, by the value of other person-centered love, by the value of humility. And that is how its king was enthroned, and that is how his kingdom grows. So as we think about the world and as we uh, witness uh, what I would see in the West as an increasingly kind of fractured uh, sort of culture in which lots of different groups are vying for power and in which we hear talk of things like culture war, Christians aren't to engage in that. not to seek to be winners, to, to, to be conquerors of others, but to be governed by the humility of Christ. This is not just, the, the kingdom of God is not just another earthly kingdom. When Jesus is on trial for his life, and he is asked, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. This is, my kingdom is not like your kingdom, Pilate. It's not like Rome. It is completely different. I will not succeed by escaping death, but by enduring it. I will not succeed by trampling others underfoot, but by being trampled underfoot. To belong to God's new society, to belong to God's kingdom, is to belong to a kingdom that is governed by that way of seeing the world. That ultimate glory and ultimate power lies with the humble, with the humbled king, who lowered himself to lift us up. So there is in Daniel this kind of big worldwide view of empires and of power and of how you see the world and how you see history and what you think history is about. It is not about, in the end, the triumph of your little tribe or, or, or your little group. It's not about the triumph of your ideas even. It is about the triumph of this kingdom based on love and humility. So Daniel invites us to look at the whole world and to look at everything through a different lens. From the lens of seeing God as God and as Almighty and, and humbling ourselves under his hand. But this testimony of Nebuchadnezzar's is not, in the end, is it, about global, simply about global politics or about national politics or about local politics or about culture politics. It's personal. It's in the first person. Do you notice what he says? Uh, this is a, a terrifying story about a man who has a total breakdown, who loses everything, including power over his own mind. He, he starts to think like an animal and live like an animal. Everything is stripped away from him. Look what he says in verse 2. It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. Nebuchadnezzar looks at all of this, and in a sense this could have the same sort of headline as a headline I saw in the Times, I think it was this week, that said, my breakdown was the making of me. And Nebuchadnezzar says, the very worst thing that ever happened in my life was the very best thing that ever happened in my life. Because God humbled me under his mighty hand. 
He broke my pride, and in so doing, he saved my life. That is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. That he, proud, haughty, powerful man that he was, had everything stripped away, and he can say, it's my pleasure to tell you about this awful thing that happened to me because it happened for me. And in many ways, I think this is the sort of basic structure of every Christian testimony. Because to become a Christian, to come to the Almighty God, is to be profoundly humbled. To have our pride taken away, to recognize that he is God and I am not, and that I have lived as though I am God and he is not. That is what confession of sin is. We say to God, we've lived in your world as if it was our world. We've asked you to get out of our universe. We have lived for ourselves. We have lived in pride, even while pretending to be humble. Have mercy on us. That is, isn't it, what it means to be a Christian? To be humbled under God's mighty hand. And I think it's just worth our while taking a moment to pause and to reflect that as Augustine suggests, pride is the most insidious vice because it's the vice that no one ever accuses themselves really of. It hides itself from us. And yet, it is the most deadly of all vices. It is at the heart of human sin setting ourselves up as though we don't need God. Maybe you sit there and you think, yeah, that's true, I'm a proud person. Or maybe you sit there and you think, no, I'm not proud at all. It's tempting, isn't it, even to take pride in our humility, like Uriah Heep, I'm ever so humble. It's a particularly... I want to say British affliction, but then I realize it's probably not, not a truly a, a, a British affliction or even an English one. But a kind of subtle pride suffuses much of our national life and our personal discourse. We need to know that to be self-effacing is not the same as to be humble. I was really caught out by this once. Um, I was uh, talking to a, a, a quite eminent um, American uh, academic and I'd just been, I was very pleased because I'd been kind of selected to do some further study and to be sort of trained up to be a, a theological educator. I thought, you know, deep down inside myself, I was thinking, I'm something pretty special. <sighs> Awful me. Anyway, I, I, I explained, you know, what I'd been invited to do by this person. And I said, <laughs> I suppose it's just because I'm a bit remedial that I have to do extra study. And the worst thing that could possibly have happened at that moment happened in that he took me completely at my word and tried to comfort me. He believed that I really thought that. And I thought, how on earth am I going to, 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 to get this person round to realizing just how brilliant I really am? And I realized that so much of what passes for humility in my life is just subtle pride. Maybe you're aware of doing that yourself. Maybe your pride shows it in the fact that faced with a long to-do list and the opportunity to pray, you will always get on with the to-do list rather than praying because, goodness me, I'm the person who can really sort my life out after all. 
what I do is the most important thing in my life. So hammer the to-do list. Skip the quiet time for today. And yet prayer is the very act of Christian humility, of coming to God and saying, I cannot do this on my own. I cannot live the life you call me to live unless by your spirit you give me power to do it. Our prayerlessness is a sign of our pride. Our dejection when things go against us is a sign of our pride, isn't it? Our do you ever get that reaction when, when someone else does really well or is praised at something you'd like to be good at? And deep down inside you think, I really hate them. <laughs> Envy is just pride when it sees others prospering, isn't it? The list, could, we could go on and on, couldn't we? You could do this for yourselves. Our pride is subtle and it's deep. But unless it's broken, it will strangle us. So I'm going to invite you just to, to bow your heads for a moment and to be quiet. And we'll share a moment of silence. And what I would invite you to do in that moment is to do something very dangerous. Invite God to humble you. It's a terrifying thing to do in some ways, isn't it? For God to prize our fingers off our lives and to cause us to say, we're yours and we depend completely on you, Lord. But why don't we just do that for a moment, just bow our heads, have a moment of silence and ask God by his spirit to show us our pride and to break it. Heavenly Father, in various ways, in our pride we believe that we can live in your world without you. We believe we can make ourselves right with you without your grace. We believe that we're the answer to our problems. We desire to take your greatness and cloak ourselves in it. Gracious God, we pray, will you give us eyes to see your glory? to see your wonders, to know that you truly are God and to wonder at your humility. That the Lord Jesus, though in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself. Father, we thank you that we have a king who has the answer to our deepest problem. And we pray that you will teach us to wonder at his humility and to be shaped by it. Thank you that in him we have forgiveness for all our sins of pride and all the other sins that spring from it. Pray, Father, that you won't simply cast us down, but having humbled us will lift us up again, that we, like Nebuchadnezzar, could proclaim your great deeds for us. In Jesus' name, amen.